Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ormark on the World Show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe, and our guest today is Jacob Allen. He's the Managing Director of Cicero Impact and has recently completed a months-long project, uh, the Giving State Report, uh, real incredible insights about better philanthropy. You won't want to miss this episode, so stick around. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show, Devin. How are you? Uh, I'm terrific, and it's a, a thrill to have you. Uh, you've been on the show before, and we're really excited today to talk about your uh, new report, The Giving State. This is focused on Utah, but I think so many of the observations and insights you've created, made in this report are uh, relevant to people all around the country and maybe around the world. What do you think? I think that's very much the case. Yes, there are some particularities around the, the context in Utah, but very much Utah has, has shares a lot of things, both good and some challenges uh, in other places. And, and so I think the lessons do apply broadly. Um, I should probably acknowledge for the record that uh, I was privileged to serve uh, on uh, the advisory board for this report. And so I, my fingerprints are on it, but uh, I don't want to claim any credit for it because you did all the hard work, you and your team, uh, with uh, Soraya and Anna and the rest, and uh, kudos to them. Maybe you, you want to just take a minute and uh, mention who the key players were in the preparation of the report, because I want to make sure we don't um, miss giving credit where it's due. Yes, well, so, yes, this was a collaboration between two organizations, uh, Cicero Social Impact, uh, with our team here, Anna, Anna Smythe and um, David Smith, and then then we partnered with Claritas Consulting, Soraya Toronto, Claritas Consulting, and it was a great collaboration. And then, as you mentioned, we had an advisory board that was pivotal in, in both the guidance and design of the whole work. And it included a cross-section of leaders and thought, um, and thought partners um, from around the, the ecosystem here in Utah in philanthropy, both funders, policymakers, experts, and nonprofit leaders. Fantastic. Well, what are the key insights from the report that you think are generally applicable, not just to Utah, but across the country, around the world? So I think one of the things that we see here and elsewhere is clearly there's just this massive desire to do good. Um, and so that's why, you know, why your show exists, why so many people are involved in all of this work. Um, and that's incredibly laudable and, and admirable. Um, and then at the same time, there's this interesting mindset that goes along, often goes along with that, that desire, which is that if I'm involved in doing something good, if I'm working hard and I'm and serving a good cause, that therefore inevitably good things will happen. And I think we've, we've found in this analysis and again seen elsewhere that that isn't always the case, that that assumption is not always true, unfortunately. And then very often, um, whether it's funders or whether it's nonprofit leaders, end up doing great things or things they think are going to be great, but don't actually yield uh, ultimate results, meaning changes in the lives of individuals and improvements in communities. Um, and that's the biggest takeaway I think we have is that that mindset needs to change uh, somewhat dramatically uh, so that we're not just moving money, but we end up moving the needle in terms of outcomes for individuals. What are some of the things that make Utah peculiar, on the other hand? 
So one thing is Utah, what we, the title of the report is The Giving State, and that's because Utahns, on average, give more money and time and service than any other state in the country, in the United States. And so that's, that's unique, and that's been known for quite a while. Um, at the same time, one of the drivers of that is religious giving, and it's not unique to Utah. There's lots of religious giving, and it's known that uh, religiosity is highly correlated with generosity as well. Uh, throughout the country and throughout the world. And, but that is, that is higher in Utah, perhaps, than in anywhere else. So that's something that's a little bit unique. Um, as a result, perhaps, there are some in the state who believe that too much money goes to churches and, and, and religious efforts. Uh, and that there's too little money coming to them to unpack that whole uh, connection. And one of the things we did find is that for those who give to their churches, they do give on the margins a little bit less to nonprofits than, than others do. But at the same time, the other side of that coin is that in many cases, almost invariably, churches play a very significant role in providing services and encouraging even greater giving um, in that ecosystem that, that plays a role that other more traditional nonprofits might play um, instead. One of the other things that the report highlighted was that uh, Utah has a, I think what the report refers to as a do-it-yourself mentality, uh, yeah. certainly an entrepreneurial spirit. How do you think that affects the uh, nonprofits ecosystem in Utah, and what do you recommend that, that Utahns do to change the ecosystem yeah. as a result of that? So that, that you're right, that do-it-yourself mentality is, is a positive. So I don't want to suggest that that's not a good thing. It's a wonderful thing that a lot of Utahns are proud of. And, and again, um, we see, everyone sees in many, many places around the world. Um, at, however, what can happen with that DIY mentality is, is this, a couple of things. One is the sense that I'm going to do it, and, it, and my way is, is going to be the right way um, because I, I've got a great idea, or I really understand the situation, or I have a unique perspective. Um, and, and that can lead to a bit of, uh, can create some blinders that people put on, their, put on effectively um, without looking around and saying, hey, has anybody else done this before? Um, has anybody else done it differently or better? And what can I learn from them? And so we see a lot of duplication or reinvention of things that have already been demonstrated to be effective or ineffective in other places. So that's one thing. Um, I think the other thing is that comes with a DIY mentality, the potential downside is um, a, a, an unwillingness or a disinclination to jump in and work with others. Um, there is a lot of collaboration and coordination that's going on in the state for sure, but there probably could be more. And that could happen, I think, if we said, I want to do it myself, but I want to do it with others, if that makes sense. Um, I want to be engaged. I want to be part of the solution. And it'll be better if I can do it with others, whether, that, whether on the funding side, if that's an individual funder saying, I'm sure there are other people out there that care about this cause. If we work together, we'll, we'll create a greater difference. Or on the nonprofit side of things saying, we know we can't do everything to address complex issues like homelessness or early childhood uh, kindergarten readiness or things like that. And if we work together in coordinated ways, we'll be able to make, create a greater event. 
I think there are two things I want to follow up on, and I'm going to try and remember to do them both separately. But you know, small brains—they're uh, frustrating sometimes. But but let's focus for a minute on collaboration because I think that's such an important lesson to take away from this report. What do you think the keys to successful collaboration are? Uh, so first, it's. Clarity about what we can agree on and who are we trying to help? What is the outcome or the change we're trying to see for that, that individual or population of individuals? Um, and getting very, very clear and aligned on those things does two things. One, it makes sure that we're all working toward the same goal and, and there's enough alignment to, to, to work together. And two, it's something we can come back to as collaborators if there's discussion or disagreement or, or questions about how well the collaboration is working or what it should do next. So we can always, you can always come back to that anchor point. So that's first. Uh, second, I think, is to think about partnerships must be a win-win situation. Um, so if I'm uh, asked to collaborate with others, I, st I should start thinking about what, what can I do that will help them achieve their objectives in addition to simply saying, how do, what can I get out of this as well? Um, so those are two key principles. There are, there are others um, being holding the collaboration accountable to results, not just to activities, sharing information and data, facilitating coordination. So all of those are, are really important pieces of it as well. But I think they really come, you need to have, again, this, this mindset of we're going to affect change. What is that change we want to achieve? And secondly, how do we work together to achieve mutually a, a, a purposeful objective? You know, the other point I wanted to circle back to is the, um, I hate to call it the counter-argument, but, but the, the concern that certainly I had as we were drafting the report, and ultimately you and others convinced me that this concern is um, secondary to the conclusion of the report, that uh, the DIY mentality leads sometimes to too many nonprofits doing the same thing redundantly yeah. uh, and not at sufficient scale to be effective. But the other side of that coin is the need for innovation and uh, to get people engaged. And I wonder if you would just uh, talk about that tension for a minute uh, as you had to weigh this thoughtfully as you were drafting the report. Sure. So you're right. There is a if the the suggestion that everybody should join forces with something that already exists, um, or at least they shouldn't start something new if something else already exists, um, might lead can lead to that question of wait, should we should we not? Isn't innovation a good thing? Um, and so I think we do. We I would absolutely agree. Innovation is a, a very important thing, and it's needed more than ever. If, if you can even say that. It's always needed, but it's needed more than ever in the social sector today, and it's happening faster and faster, and that's all positive. Um, I think what happens, what the concern is, is when people think they're innovating, but they're not. Um, and, and that happens when people come up with an idea, start to do some work, um, but aren't aware of what else is happening. Um, and so I think innovation that adds to, that fills in gaps, that takes things in new directions, um, is fantastic, uh, but innovation that does the same thing that others are doing is not innovation. It's, it's duplication and replication, and that usually is not as productive or efficient as 
joining forces. If, if you want to do the same thing, let's, let's join forces and work together. Yeah, I, I, I saw an interesting example of what you're talking about recently, uh, and I'm embarrassed the name of the organization and the individual escapes me, but this fellow had worked in the um, homeless services sector, homeless youth services sector for some time and recognized that there really was no one who was taking care of all the young people, I'll call them kids, uh, I and ask for forgiveness, but, but no one was taking care of all the kids that couldn't comply with someone, someone's program, right? The kids that were failing out of all the programs were just on the streets and no one was helping them. So they set up an organization just to help those kids. And so they literally have to go out on the streets in the middle of the night and find these kids and offer them help. And most of the time they turn it down and they have to come back and find them again and offer them help. I mean, yeah. it's a painful process, but that was seemed to me to be an example of a needed innovation that came about as a result of someone who was really an expert in the space and had thoughtfully, carefully identified a real gap in services and, and implemented. It wasn't just someone new doing what someone else was doing in maybe a slightly different way. That's exactly right. And, and that kind of activity is absolutely essential because there are lots of gaps, um, either because resources are constrained, you know, nonprofit or it's 10 nonprofits can't do a lot, or because often, as often the case, some nonprofits don't see those blind spots. Um, they don't, aren't aware, they, they aren't as aware as they could be of, of the people that are falling out or the people that are not serving or the fact that they're not getting them as far forward as they would like. At the same time, you and I both see people all the time who are launching nonprofits and haven't recognized that there are already three people doing exactly the same or three organizations doing exactly the same thing that could just desperately need the resources. And the money that goes into spooling up and forming a nonprofit might have fed a thousand people a meal, uh, yeah. you know, or, or some other equivalent uh, social impact instead of just... Uh, setting up a new nonprofit. So the redundancy can be very expensive in terms of impact, can't it? It absolutely can. It absolutely can. It's a, a drain on the resources that could be going to more effective purposes. One of the things that I loved about the report uh, is that you came up with a, a, a clear, uh, it was a great diagram in the book, um, I think it's figure 17 in the report, but it's the it's kind of a diagram that shows inputs to impact. And we sometimes use words like outputs, outcomes, and impact almost interchangeably. Um, I've even been guilty of confusing those concepts, but your diagram really helps to distinguish the difference between an output, an outcome, and an impact. And and when we really start to, to distinguish those things, I think our, our mindset about measurement and what we're really trying to achieve shifts as it must. Walk us through, if you would, uh, that concept. And I think it's on page 38. You probably have the report in your hand. Maybe you to make sure I don't, I don't mess up the diagram. But, um, so yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think there has been a lot of discussion about it, it, comparing outputs and distinguishing those from outcomes 
Um, and, and yet there is a, a fair amount of uh, uh, lack of clarity or unawareness of what that really means. So uh, the way we think about it, I'm going to go backwards, if you will. I'm going to start at the end. Uh, and I think this process actually is very helpful is to you know, begin with the end in mind is to say, what is the impact we want to see? And I think about that in terms of um, the change that we would like to see in the individual or the community's behavior and, and status and well-being. And that can be in the form of knowledge or skills or behaviors or socioeconomic standing or, or opportunities or the like. So to think about that in two fronts. So one is, what is the change that's going to occur that we want to have occur? And two, we, can we, or will we be able to determine that we helped generate that change? We as a nonprofit or I as a funder helped cause that change. And to me, that's the difference between outcomes and impact. Outcomes, again, are the change we see in somebody's life or abilities or opportunities. And impact is the recognition and awareness that what something we did led to that outcome, as opposed to the many other things that are happening in, in the life of an individual or in the community. Uh, so again, starting with the impact and outcomes in mind, then working backwards and saying, what are the things that need to happen in order for those outcomes to occur? And how do we measure uh, outputs that are likely to lead to those outcomes? So the example might be, um, if you are helping children, you know, under, that are under six years old be ready for kindergarten. And so there are a variety of metrics and, and a lot of evidence that says that re kindergarten readiness is pivotal and has lifelong um, implications for education and employment and so on. If that's the case, then what are the things that we're, what are the outcomes for pre-K readiness? And it's literacy and numeracy at the very basic level could be one of those things. It could be an ability to interact with kids. There are a variety of outcomes. But what are we going to do that leads to those things? And it might be the number of kids we've taught. Uh, it might be the number of hours they've spent with, with uh, educators or interacting with other children or, or being read to. Um, those would be indicators that are outputs of our work, but aren't necessarily demonstrating that we've made a change yet. So many, many organizations count outputs and say that's the impact we're having. And there's a disconnect there. If we say we're, we taught 20 kids this year and that's the measure of our, of our success, well, that's great and it's possible or even likely that that is making a difference for those kids. But we don't know in many, many cases, we, good evaluation work demonstrates that 20 kids in, in a classroom doesn't necessarily yield uh, readiness for kindergarten. And then if you work backward from there, then it's what are the specific activities that we need to focus on that will lead to those specific outcomes that we're trying to aim for. And if we prioritize social interaction and emotional intelligence as one type of outcome, then that will lead to different, different activities will be important for that outcome than say a different type of outcome, which is literacy and understanding uh, um, letters and, and numbers and so on. That will likely require different activities than the social and then finally, those inputs, what are the capabilities or funding or resources or partnerships or other kinds of things that will be required for us to be successful at driving those activities in a way that yields the outcomes we're looking for? 
Perfect, perfect, perfect. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to walk us through that report. Now, Jacob, where can people get this report and how much do they have to pay to get a copy? Well, the report's free, so you can download that online. Um, the report is available at www.cicerosocialimpact.org slash giving state. Now, how do you spell Cicero social yeah. impact? Well, social impact we've got. How do you spell Cicero? Cicero is C-I-C-E-R-O. So cicerosocialimpact.org slash giving state. Um, there's a whole page there with a, a lot of the information as well as the full report that you can download. And I tried it this morning, and you can just Google uh, the Giving State Report. And it won't be the first first thing, but you can find it. So in an emergency, that's your backup. But uh, we'll also put a link with the, uh, with the show notes in, uh, in the YouTube, in the, in the uh, podcast, everywhere we can put the notes. We'll put the notes so you can find, the, uh, find that link. But uh, it's a, really a, an incredible report. Uh, Jacob, I commend you on getting it done, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you, Devin. I appreciate the time to be here with you, um, and thank you for the help with the report. It was, a, it was definitely a collaboration with a lot of people providing a lot of input and details. Over 800 people responded to surveys um, and interviews and so on, so we appreciate everybody who's helping trying to move the sector forward. Yeah. Well, thank you. Now, let's do some good. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.